This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Wednesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined by a first-timer, a resident Knoxvillian, uh, like myself. We don't get many of these in this very podcast, but it's Stats by Will. I'm giving you the full nickname moniker, Will. Good afternoon. How are you? Doing well, Chase. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here, man. Um, what, uh, what have you found yourself when you're not watching uh march madness and you're not uh, diving into um the statistical makeup of the oregon state beavers uh what uh what have you been reading uh i've been into it's been a little hard with these late games where it's like i'm not going to bed until 12 30 most nights but mm-hmm. uh, a big fan of I, I try and read about 40 to 50 books a year and the one i'm on right now is willa cather's oh pioneers which i never read in school or anything so mm-hmm. I've been trying to check out some of the older books I've had on my uh, to-read list on Goodreads for a while. But beyond that, I like that, and I like unwinding with some Bob's Burgers uh, on the non-basketball nights. Bob's Burgers is great. Um, I was blown away by how many seasons they're at right now. Um, I I was watching because I think I was with my girlfriend the other day when we were we put it on in the background, and it it was just like I was looking at the season I was like what is that like season 10 are we in double digits of Bob Burgers like how did we how do we get here um no my my go-to um for just like to escape sports and like how I go to sleep every night is Arrested Development Arrested Development is literally what I've fallen asleep to for 10 years now well I, I I can't escape but um the book that I am reading I don't know if you have gotten into it is Euphoria are you a big fiction guy at all yes Mm-hmm. Have you read you, Euphoria? Yeah. I have not read this. No. Okay, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's a very good, uh, it's a very good read, and it's uh, one where you're just like, oh, dang, it's two thirty a.m. and I should not have uh, started this at uh, eleven thirty. This was this was bad because it's good, um, and you'll just find yourself just uh, fully, fully invested and uh, very hard to to go to sleep. Um, this naturally brings us to the final four in March Madness. Will, um, I want to pick your brain about the final four, how we got here, um, Gonzaga, and what makes them so dominant, uh, programs that you believe in from this tournament going forward, and programs that you're worried about going forward, and other things of that nature. Don't forget, folks, you can go to chasethomaspodcast.com today to get access to all of my previous episodes and articles. And if you like listening to Will and I on this very podcast today, leave us a five-star rating interview on Apple Podcasts. So if you have an iPhone, do that right now. Um, Will, how did these four teams, UCLA, Houston, Baylor, and Gonzaga, make the final four? How did they earn it? 
I, I think they all got there by substantially different ways to me. Uh, obviously, the most fascinating of these, I think, to anyone is UCLA's path. Uh, I mean, how wild is it to remember they trailed Michigan State by 13 in that first half? They were only down by 11 because they hit a miraculous mid-range chuck as time expired. They were so close to not being here. Now they're in the Final Four. But there's been two consistent threads of that run in particular for me. They do not turn the ball over much at all. I think their peak in a tournament game so far is they've turned it over on thir- – I think they turned it over on 13% of possessions last night against Michigan, which is – that would, I believe, be the lowest rate of any team on a season-long average. Uh, and they also slow these games down to a crawl um, – None of their five NCAA tournament games have had more than 64 possessions, which is well below the national average. And you can see it just how, like, second half of Alabama, you see Tiger Campbell or Hakez or uh, Juzang walking the ball up so slowly that multiple times in that Alabama and Michigan game both, you saw the players realize, oh, I've got two seconds to get this ball across half court with no pressure, and they do a little jog. It's like that's so consistent with them where they're trying to bleed the clock all the way down minimize the number of possessions the higher and better seed has in order to try and come out on top. Because I think, uh, I don't think anybody would declare this the most talented UCLA team of all time. It's certainly not Kevin Love and Russ Westbrook out there, but they, they're tight. They're well coached. I've always liked Mick Cronin, uh, though I really did not appreciate his comment that stats are for losers. That's very rude of him. Um, I don't know. They're just like a fun little team. I, I'm not pleased that they beat Michigan, which is where my dad went, but it was a cool story. Uh, And the other three, you know, were kind of – Gonzaga and Baylor are the obvious favorites in their regions. Uh, Gonzaga got a really easy draw, to be honest. Uh, USC was the best team in that bracket, not named Gonzaga, and they shredded them start to finish like it was nothing. Uh, Baylor seems to be back. I think that COVID pause in February really threw them for a loop, rhythm and routine-wise. And I wonder if being in Indianapolis altogether, you know, you know your schedule, you know what's coming next, you know that you're being tested daily and all that. It's hard to quantify, but they certainly look a lot better and more in touch defensively. And they've jumped 16 spots defensively in Ken Palm since the tournament started. And then Houston is just cool to me because this is a team that understands shot volume is more important than shot selection. Hmm. I, I mean, you watch that Oregon State game and it was like, it was hard, even when there wasn't a Houston player exactly near the basket, when Houston missed a shot, I was assuming in my mind, okay, they're going to get this rebound yeah, somehow. <laughs> yeah. And they're like a fairly average shooting offense. They're little above the national average in field goal percentage, but they rebound 40% of their missed attempts, have oh. a pretty low turnover. Jordan Sperber, Hoop Vision 60 on Twitter, has a fantastic video about how hyper-aggressive they are in defense. Uh, and luckily for them, they haven't really faced a team that's got great post-passers yet. Oregon State was probably the best uh, of the group they played in their region, actually. Um, But if if there's a team out there that has really good post-passing, they can get those skip passes to the corner for open threes that Houston's vulnerable to. But I remain waiting to see a team actually do that because they're so quick and so good at rotating. Interesting. Um what uh what what do you think is the best like what which team do you think has the best shot against Gonzaga? Is it the obvious Baylor or does Houston perhaps pose a better threat even than UCLA? 
I'm going to give you the cop-out answer and say both Houston and Baylor are about equal in my head, but they would have very, very different paths towards a W. Houston, like I mentioned, Houston can muck it up defensively a lot better than Baylor can. They can force Gonzaga to play essentially the second version of the West Virginia game from December, which is the only time Gonzaga has been held to a single-digit margin of victory. But uh, Baylor, on the other end, they're really good at maximizing shot volume in a different way where they force a ton of turnovers and also crash the boards. And, you know, we've seen all season long, they hit a ton of threes. They rank number one in the nation in three-point percentage. They haven't really needed that this tournament until the Arkansas game where they got some clutch threes, you know, both first and second half to push them over the top on what was kind of an off night for them defensively, I thought. Um, And with Baylor in particular, I find Gonzaga more vulnerable inside than outside defensively, uh, which would make Davion Mitchell on Baylor extremely important because he's so quick and can get to the rim in so many ways. Interesting. Um, Which side of the bracket for you turned out to be the most fascinating to follow? (laughs) I'm a huge sucker for regions that implode. Um, (laughs) Midwest region easily because, you know, some of this, some of the implosion I wasn't terribly surprised by. Like, I thought Syracuse was a, a really good 11 seed. I expected Loyola to beat Illinois because I thought it was a huge coaching mismatch, to be honest. But two things that really stuck out to me from that were the obvious one, the Oregon State Elite Eight run that came out of nowhere. And then Houston's entire side of the bracket just went up in flames. They, they I mean, they're the first team ever to go four double-digit seeds in a row to the Final Four. And I would be surprised if we ever see that again because it requires so many things to go right for that team. I mean, it was such an unusual path. I mean, great for them that they got there, of course, but it is kind of funny. We're looking at a team in the Final Four and we're like, but have they really been tested yet? So the Midwest region was wild, and I can't imagine anybody but Oregon State grads, and probably Bill Walton had Oregon State in the Elite Eight. Yeah, um, I actually have a coworker who had uh, Oregon State in the Final Four, um, and he he made sure to show me that uh, he had Oregon State in the Final <laughs> Four. So I thought that was pretty pretty interesting. Um, and also, it made me feel better. I don't know if you're a, like I know you're local Knoxvilleian, but I don't know if you're actually a Tennessee fan. So um, I I think it, it it made me feel better that Oregon State made this kind of run after knocking out Tennessee. It made that loss look a, li- a lot less embarrassing. It looked like a better better loss. Um, that's all you can really hope for as a Tennessee fan. Make those losses look a little bit better. Um, what stats uh, for the big dance have you been most enamored and uh, curious by? Uh, there's some pretty easy ones because like UCLA helped us actually last night officially set a new record for tournament upsets, which is, you know, five seed difference or greater mm. at, at 14 upsets in one tournament, which is insane. Uh, and if you count Oregon State over Loyola, which is a four seed difference, and I mean, pretty much everyone thought Loyola was going to win that game. It's 15. So the wild thing is we just witnessed objectively the wildest NCAA tournament ever, and we still ended up with two one seeds and a two seed in the final four. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, uh, the the possessions per game, this has been the slowest, and we'll, we'll wait for the final four and all to determine this for sure, but this has been the slowest, most half-court-oriented NCAA tournament of the 30-second shot clock era. We're barely cracking 66 possessions a game. Uh, and as I noted on Twitter yesterday, Gonzaga, this is 
a truly incredible stat to me. And Ken Pomeroy helped out, as I'll mention, but they just completed their 54th game in a row where they hit 50% or more of their two-pointers. Uh, Ken Palm has play-by-play stats dating back to the 96-97 season. No other team in history has gotten more than 36. Hmm. So they're on a roll unlike anything ever seen before. That's really that's wild. Um, I like that there is at least one team that, to go from the first four into the final four. I like that kind of story. Mick Cronin seems like a guy that's really easy to root for. And like, I just, this UCLA team is just wild, wild to watch. And they just never say die and all that kind of stuff. And Mick talked about it in a Pat 40 piece of just like that. We, we like being the underdogs and that's just kind of who we are. It's just weird that it's UCLA noted underdog and a uh, college basketball outsider, <laughs> the UCLA Bruins, um, a they, classic they, underdog story. They, <laughs> um, yeah. They have number one due to the tournament at Hawkes. I have not loved a non-Tennessee or Michigan player more in years than Hawkes. Who, my thing is, if you have the look he does, which is the goatee headband, mm. loose hair combo, I know that you are one of the most confident people on earth. And when I see that, when I see him make that shot against Alabama as t- as uh, the shot clock is expiring, when he made that insane one uh, where he was midair and just chucked it and it went down against Alabama. I don't know. That locks me in as a as a Hawkes super fan for life. I um I like Campbell a lot. Like his shots should not fall, and his scoop under under the basket reversals shouldn't land. Nothing looks easy for him, and I I don't know how he gets any shots off. I, I like Tiger Campbell. He's he's funny. <laughs> he's funny to watch. Um, let's talk about Gonzaga, the favorites. Um, there's a really good piece today on ESPN.com and Metcalf, uh, Myron Metcalf, great college basketball writer um wrote about this in a little anecdote talking about the final four um no one's done what gonzaga's about to do and there have been teams like we saw in 75 i want to say with indiana um doing that but this is no one in this iteration of the ncaa tournament have pulled off what uh gonzaga's trying to pull off wichita state was i guess the most recent one and they got ousted by was it kentucky uh in the second round um it's really hard to go undefeated and it's really hard to do what Gonzaga is trying to do. But then you watch them and you're like, I don't understand how this team loses. And that's what we all say until team loses. Um, their starting five is just so unique. They all do different things and different things. Well, it's the perfect blend of talent and roles. Um, what, what makes them so unique when you watch Gonzaga and this, this starting five? The the wild thing to me is that they added Jalen Suggs, who's obviously going to be a top five pick. I, I think he's going to end up being number three in all likelihood, uh, as far as I've read. But they added him, and they added Andrew Nembhard from Florida, who, you know, love him or hate him at Florida, he did have a good impact when he was on the court. Uh, but he would never seem to be, like, a super great player necessarily. But they added all of that. And for this team, I know they entered the season number one at Ken Palm. They entered the season number one in most analytics sites. Um, but for them to gel in the fashion they have, especially as a starting unit, especially with Timmy going from like a fine player last year to the literal best player in the nation this season on using Ken Palm's player of the year ratings. Uh, I mean, it really is unlike anything I have seen in a long time where you know, the closest comparison I had in mind probably in February and early March was 2014-15 Kentucky, the team that entered undefeated, lost in the Final Four. 
but they they never that Kentucky team was never anywhere close offensively to what this Gonzaga group is where they don't uh, I think the misconception around Gonzaga from people who don't watch them a bunch is because they score so many points you think oh that's a team that takes and makes a lot of threes like Alabama they have one of the lowest three-point attempt rates in the entire field it's the fact that they are as of now the highest uh, or the most efficient two-point offense in college basketball history that really sets them apart they make almost 64 percent of their twos per game that's, I mean, when you watch them, the Creighton uh, shooter, I'm already blanking on his name. What was his name? Number 11. I'm, George, it's a, Jurgens? Uh, what, what is his name? Number 11, the lefty shooter uh, for Creighton. Are you thinking of Marcus Rowski? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, had some really great buckets. Like he was pulling up from all over the place. He was having to do everything for Creighton to keep them alive. Like Creighton was playing well for like two thirds of that first half. And then it was just like, Oh, they're just holding water. And like, this is the dam is going to break. And Gonzaga is a team where you just have in your notes and you can feel it. You can feel like Gonzaga is like, is that, is that it? Are you, are you done now? Are, are you, are you ready for us to just open it up, open the floodgates? They did it to USC too. Like USC actually probably should have lost by 40 last night if you go back and watch, like there is a path yeah. to usc getting really really embarrassed in that game um and it's it's just incredible because usc was long and they the mobile builders inside and just it shouldn't have been that easy but gonzaga just makes really good teams look really bad and really bad really fast and it's just it's not fair um who do you think when you look at this group is the most important piece for the gonzaga bulldogs I think most people's answer would be Timmy because he is the best player on the team. But uh, really, to me, the most important key to them at this point, it's like they either win by 10 or win by 30, is uh, Corey Kispert. When, when he is hitting from downtown and he's hit 45% of his threes this year, and uh, per Ken Palm, he's the ninth most efficient player in all of basketball, regardless of usage rate. When he's hitting those, it opens up tons of driving lanes for Suggs, for Nembard, for Ayayi. Uh, it takes attention away from Timmy, and he's got a deceptively solid defensive impact, particularly in helping generate turnovers. When when Kispert's on, and he's such a unique player as six foot seven power forward, that is the, probably the best shooter in college basketball. Um, He's such a hard player to defend, such a hard player to stick with because he doesn't stop moving and he doesn't turn it over. Uh, it's when he when when he's on, you basically have no chance of beating this Gonzaga team unless the rest of the team fails to attend the game. <laughs> yeah, it uh, Timmy's just I, I don't understand. It shouldn't work, and it just works. He's kind of like Garza, just the inside version, where it's just like this should not be this dominant and this work this way, but it it just does. <laughs> um, where does this Gonzaga team rank all time for you among the best teams in college basketball history? Well, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, uh, prior to the tournament, I think I would have said best team since the thirty-eight and one Kentucky squad if not further back, just simply because they only played 26 regular season games. We didn't quite get the same large sample size that we usually would uh, because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but most most of the big-time NCAA tournament teams are going to enter having played about 32 to 35 games. So 26 is a little short. But then we get to March, and 
you, you go game by game here. Oklahoma, Austin Reeves had probably the best game of his career, and Gonzaga won by 16. Zagorowski had a great game for Creighton, and there was a stretch in the first half where they hit nine shots in a row. Creighton loses by 18. USC comes in as the hottest team not named Gonzaga, maybe in the entire field with the number two draft pick and the best two-point defense, loses by 19. Uh, we're honestly tracking for this to be, at minimum, the best team since Shane Battier, 2000-2001 Duke. Uh, I mean, if they finish off, they I would hear out a case they're better. Interesting. Yeah, I just... <sighs> I don't. Do you think it matters? Will it change your opinion at all if they they lose a tough, just everything goes wrong type of situation, or an all time effort from a Baylor or a UCLA? Does it change your perspective on them at all? Moderately, I think my my perspective on them has been I just feel very lucky to have watched this team play for a full season because when you know college basketball doesn't get super elite squads like this very often. This is like a once every five to 10 years thing. And when you get these teams, you have to appreciate them for what they are, even if they don't win the title. It's how I felt about Kentucky. It's how I felt about, you know, going way back in 1999, the Duke team that lost to UConn in the title game. Uh, And that Duke team was easily the best team in college basketball that year. But with Gonzaga, I, I think regardless of what happens the rest of the way, I do think a UCLA loss would definitely diminish the legacy a bit if you lose to an 11 seed. But if they if they chunk one up to Baylor or Houston, the title game, that's still like a top three or four team they're losing to. And I think, at, I mean, again, at minimum, that places them as the best team since that 2014-15 Kentucky squad and still probably since 2000-2001 Duke. We, we just haven't seen a team this elite, this dominant from start to finish, wire to wire of a season, because even that Kentucky team had to win in overtime twice. Uh, we, we haven't seen anything like this in so long. Yeah. Um, what would you say has been their most impressive win? When you look at their entire season to this point, what would you say is the most impressive Gonzaga win in 2020-2021? You know, I, I kind of think it's USC last night mm. because they did really – they were fine from three. They, I'm checking right now. They went seven for 21. Uh, they didn't force a ton of turnovers. USC got more free throws. Gonzaga actually had one of their lesser two-point efforts of the year, and they probably should have won by 25 or more on a night where they were kind of just – like for Gonzaga, I would feel like Mark Few would say this was their B-plus or a B effort. He probably – I would expect him to say they were just fine which is wild because they just beat the number six team on Kempom by 19. And like I said, had they stayed on the gas, that would have been a 25 plus point win. Uh, I mean, they, they, it, it was wire to wire in a way that the, the Oklahoma and Creighton games weren't necessarily where it was 15 to three Gonzaga before you blinked an eye and you were like, well, this is over. USC is not going to score enough points to keep up. And they did it. And, for them to do that, and, you know, again, that's the highest-ranked team they've beaten this year. And they, they did it in a more impressive fashion to me than they did against Iowa or Kansas or even West Virginia, like I mentioned, the one close game. But, yeah, I mean, until they beat Baylor or Houston, I think that's going to stand as the most impressive victory. Hmm. Um, March Madness, winners and losers. I want to get, when you think about the, the field um, and what you saw across the board, Will, who impressed you the most, and who do you think 
uh, falls in the list of, you know, I think this program, what they did is sustainable. And this is a program that people should watch and monitor to be like, this is a sweet 16 elite eight uh, contender for the next couple of years. Who falls into that category for you? Kind of easy, kind of easy to say the whole pack 12, right? Is it though? <laughs> Can we just pencil I, them I, in? Are we, are we sure about these three? We'll, we'll get on that in a bit, but I, I think the obvious answer, honestly, is Mick Cronin and UCLA, which is kind of funny because this is the most anti-Mick Cronin team I could have imagined them having, where they're, they're not, I don't feel like they're great defensively. They're, they're good, they're solid, but they're not elite like his Cincinnati teams were. They, they don't block shots, they don't force many turnovers, but every single game is low and slow. They've hit a ton of mid-range jumpers. Uh, at a time when it's not very popular. Um, I, I don't know if that's sustainable like going forward necessarily, but I think it should signal to people who are skeptical of the Cronin hire when it happened that he is a legitimately very good basketball coach. And uh, I think at minimum he's going to make UCLA a more consistent you know, top 15 to 26 year than, say, like Steve Alford did in the non-Lonzo years. Uh, but beyond that, the, the second most uh, the the uh, the other expected thing I know like Gonzaga's run was expected it's been more dominant than most thought it would be but if I had to name a team where I saw their run and I was like yeah this is going to happen again in the near future it's Arkansas uh, you know they got fortunate by having to play Oral Roberts instead of you know an Ohio State or whoever else but that. I mean, they obviously struggled in that game a lot, but for them to get back to the Sweet 16 for the first time in 26 years and the Elite Eight for the first time, I believe in 27, you know, I, I really liked the Muscleman hire when it happened, and I was a little skeptical on them going into March because their offense was not firing on all cylinders, uh, especially in that SEC tournament. But, you know, the way they fight defensively, the way that they just have a wide collection of guys who in my mind don't fit together. It's like a collection of misfit toys, but on the court, it all seems to work. Um, that just seems sustainable to me because Musselman is so good at roster construction where I think people have kind of forgotten. They lost so much from last year. They had some, the I believe the lowest minutes continuity of any team to make the NCAA tournament this year. They only returned 12% of their minutes from last season. And for them to make the Elite Eight this year way ahead of schedule is so impressive to me. And because Musselman's a little on the older side, I think he's 56, it, it seems likely to me he's going to stay there a while and keep building and building. And Arkansas has always invested a lot in their basketball program. Uh, they've had some kind of unlucky run of results over the last 25 years, but it seems like it just seems like they're going to be a sweet 16 fixture for a while, doesn't it? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> hope not. Uh, well, I think Nessie just left. He entered the portal today. So that's, that's step one to getting them out of there. Um, getting, uh, <laughs> getting them out of there. Um, who then on the flip side, will? are you like, mm, didn't like what I saw. Uh, I don't think we should expect this program to continue in this direction and that we should actually expect them to go in the opposite direction in the coming years? Um, that's a good question because I, I think the one that really stands out to me immediately is 
I'm uh, pretty much done with the whole Iowa thing, the whole Fran McCaffrey deal. Oh, man. Uh, okay. He's, he's not a bad coach by any means. I think Fran is, you know, especially offensively, a pretty brilliant coach where, you know, Luca Garza was not Luca Garza two years ago when Tennessee played them in the round of 32. Much different player, not nearly as efficient, not nearly as dominant. So the work they did there is amazing. But this is like the 10th Iowa season in a row where I'm like, all right, they can score. I know they're going to get 80 points a game. Are they going to hold the other team below 80? And that's never, I'm never terribly confident they're going to do that no matter who they play. Like, uh, I felt like an idiot for trusting them to get past Oregon when I knew Oregon was going to dump a bunch of points on them. Um, they just, they're frustratingly intent on rostering a team with no good individual defenders. Uh, but beyond that, obviously the Texas thing was really troubling. You know, they're not going to have Shaka anymore because he's left for Marquette, but Texas, I mean, I had Abilene Christian winning that game because of the turnover differential, but Texas should never be in a position to lose to Abilene Christian under any circumstances. Uh, and lastly, uh, I've come out of this March more down on Brad Underwood in Illinois than I anticipated being. Mm. Uh, it wasn't just that they lost to Loyola. I figured, you know, like if they, you know, if they lose by two to Loyola, it is what it is. Weird things happen in March, and you know, it, it, March is such a weird month for a lot of things. Like we just watched Oregon State make the Elite Eight. But Brad Underwood had no idea how to counteract what Porter Moser and Loyola were doing. They were doubling Kofi Coburn in the post every time. They had no adjustment there. They had nothing for Loyola's high ball screens to free up uh, Crutwig for easy twos. And when I was watching that game, you know, I was like, well, obviously the Kofi thing is a bit of an issue. And I'm sure they'll, they can adjust that roster-wise. And he's still obviously a really good player. But the fact that Underwood had no adjustments ready to roll at any point of that game was very troubling for me. Hmm. Um, why do you think the Big Ten struggled so much this March? <laughs> oh, man, this is, this is going to be the best story of the, of the offseason because uh, college basketball people love making fun of the Big Ten, I think. I, I, this is like a it's a small sample size deal where it's like you know beyond Ohio State they had like a pretty fine opening round and I guess beyond Purdue who I, I had already forgotten lost to North Texas to be honest but the way that the Big Ten plays as you know for lack of a better term giants uh, in the seeding uh, packing order kind of leaves them generally more vulnerable to these upsets where you, you picture picture Big Ten basketball in your mind and this lines up statistically. You picture this low and slow, not many possessions. It's the generally the team that gets the most free throws wins. You've got to be good on the boards. You never turn it over. It, you mean you probably just picture Bo Ryan, Wisconsin, and it seems like the whole conference starts to play like that in March. And when you play lower possession basketball, where you don't force many turnovers, and neither Michigan nor Illinois, the two best teams in the Big Ten, did this season, and Iowa same. You you leave yourself open to that because you're playing in unfamiliar arenas in March. You know the Big Ten teams. I honestly expected to do better than they did because some of these arenas they play in in the regular season. But with that being said, you know the the whole conference ranked below average in field goal percentage for a fifth straight season. And while they had good offenses, there are only two defenses that were consistently excellent the whole season through: Michigan and Illinois. 
Iowa and Ohio State had the great offense, bad defense combo. Wisconsin and Rutgers had the opposite. They, the, I think Michigan might have done better had Livers been available the whole way through, but and obviously Illinois got unlucky drawing Loyola. But yeah, it's they have there has to be a sort of shift in the way they approach March. I think because if you continue to play such a slow tempo like Michigan does, like Ohio State does, especially Wisconsin, I'm sure is the image in everyone's mind. Playing low possession games leaves you open upsets because that's fewer possessions to distinguish yourself from the opponent. Yeah. Um, your final four predictions. How do you think it ends up? Well, uh, I like Gonzaga over UCLA. I honestly do not anticipate that game being close. I'm willing to be wrong. Uh, Baylor Houston is a really fascinating game because you know now that's number two and number three in Ken Palm. Uh, the weird thing about it that I don't think a lot of people know is it's Houston that has both units, offense and defense, in the top 10. Baylor's defense still ranks 28th. Uh-huh. Both teams um, are also in Texas. People forget. Many forget that both are in Texas. I wonder if there's like any bad blood at all. I've mm. never researched it. Possibly. Possibly. I think there could be one. I would, I, you know, I'll research that. But okay. anyway, I, the thing that is actually strange about it is Houston matches up very well well with Baylor, where Baylor and both defensive rebound and uh, rim protection are two things that Houston thrives with. They're, like we've mentioned, an amazing offensive rebounding team, and they get a ton of good looks inside the uh, perimeter. So I'm going to go with a Gonzaga-Houston title game, and you know I'm not picking against Gonzaga in, no matter who the opponent is at this point. So uh, I would be not like stunned, but fairly surprised that Gonzaga is not your national champion this time next week. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to say Baylor. I just don't think it's going to be Gonzaga. Like until history, like they rewrite history, I'm going to say they don't do it. I'm just going to, I'm going to stay with the, uh, they don't do it and they lose to one of the two, either UCLA or Baylor is what I'm going to say. Um, all right. Well, that is all I've got. Uh, well, what can we check out from you uh, this week at your very good website? <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, Statsbible.com is the website. Uh, same handle on Twitter, of course. Uh, I'm going to be doing... So during the season, I preview every Tennessee basketball game. And in March, now that Tennessee's out, I've been doing it here and there for other games. I'm going to be doing full game previews for the Final Four and the National Title game. Uh, going to be doing a post about the best offenses in college of basketball across all levels next week. And then hopefully down the road in April, going to get into some baseball coverage. Uh, now that I work from home, I'm all the way in on watching some baseball while uh, just having it on as background noise. So, All right. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for making the time. Well, this is great. I greatly appreciate it. <laughs> Anytime, man. Life is too short to sleep between anything less than really nice sheets. But maybe you looked at some retailers and calculated the years of interest you'd pay on just one set and gave up. Trust me, go check out Brooklinen. So, Brooklinen was started by Rich and Vicky, who also tried to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg. And when they couldn't, they founded Brooklinen as the first direct-to-consumer bedding company. They work directly with manufacturers to make luxury available directly to you without the luxury-level markups. 
Brook Linen has a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials to fit your needs and tastes. Brook Linen has over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. They are so confident you will love their products. They even offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. And Brook Linen is so much more than sheets. They've got comforters. They've got pillows, towels, even loungewear, and more. Go to brooklinen.com and use promo code CHASE-T, that's me, to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more plus free shipping. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter promo code CHASE-T to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more plus free shipping. Brooklinen and use promo code CHASE-T at checkout. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast, and I'm now joined by someone that I've been reading forever and ever. Back when Daily Thunder first started during the ESPN True Hoop era, it's Royce Young of ESPN.com. Royce, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing well, Chase, and thanks for the uh, the old shout out, the old DT. I appreciate that. I miss it, man. I miss the True Hoop Network, and I miss reading all those different blogs. And I miss having them all bookmarked. There's still a couple left standing, like. Uh, Wolf Among Wolves um, had Tim on last night, but uh, yeah, I miss it. Do you miss reading all the various like Clipper blogs and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think in some ways yes, but in some ways no, because a lot of the people that I was doing that with have kind of gone on and become professionals in the industry, you know. And, yeah. And so I, I, I'm, you know, technically I'm reading them still, mm-hmm. but I mean, it it was a it was kind of a a fun innocent time when everybody kind of had these blogs and that was like the way that you went and consumed your team news was, you know, you, of course you got it from your local beat reporters and your columnists and your traditional media outlets, but it was, a, uh, it was, it just seemed a little different than where like that, like the, the team blog was like really part of kind of your, your like daily, yeah you know, digest of, of team information. Absolutely. Um, so I want to talk to you about the Thunder, Royce. I know you don't talk about them enough on this, uh, <laughs> during the NBA season and everything, but I want to, get your perspective on a a multitude of things with this team, because I think they're very fascinating at the moment. And I think we have to start. um, I'm sure you're, you've gotten asked this a lot about the Thunder's decision to sit Horford for the remainder Mm -hmm. of the season. What is real there? And can you illuminate some stuff that's going on behind the scenes, maybe with this of why this is happening? If the Thunder expected some pushback on this, what, Al really wants um, down the stretch mm-hmm. here. What uh, what do you make of all of this? Yeah, look, I, I think it was something that was going to be in in the plans um, already. You know, I you know I, I've been told that Thunder were planning to do this probably for the last fifteen games, maybe or so. Anyway, that was always kind of part of the plan. Just to, you know, assuming that their record would be such where you know, that's kind of what teams do in at, at the end, back end of regular seasons that are outside of the mix. You know, a lot of times. They will say, "Yeah, he's having uh, he's having a little scope on his knee, and we're going to shut him down." You know, like that happens routinely in the NBA. W- what kind of changed this chase is that Shea Gilgis Alexander and his injury kind of just opened the door for it to to be done a little bit sooner. And mm-hmm. 
you know, I think that on the one hand, it, it's clearly an opportunity. You know, the Thunder can can be a little bit facetious when they talk about the tank stuff, <laughs> but like, you know, it's it's pretty clear what some of the intent here is. I do believe Al Horford is completely on board with it, and I've been told that he could not have been a more uh, impressive professional from day one in Oklahoma City. He is really, really. Um, impressed a lot of people around the organization just with his attitude and his demeanor and his approach. And so, you know, I think for Horford, he, you know, he didn't ask to be traded to Oklahoma City. He signed a contract with the 76ers. He was with a team that was contending in the East, and because of a bad fit and a bad season, he got moved to OKC. And, you know, he's got a, 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 a bloated contract, and he's in a tough spot. And so I think for Horford, much in the same way that Chris Paul – did last year in Oklahoma City, kind of came to OKC to try to kind of restore his reputation and rebuild some playing credibility to, you know, give himself some trade value, which I think he's accomplished. I think that Horford has shown that he can still play. And I think people around the league have taken notice of that. I mean, he was a guy, you know, that po- his name popped up in, at the trade deadline. He, a deal didn't get done because it was hard trades to make. I mean, again, Chris Paul wasn't getting traded at the deadline last year. Because nobody stepped, you know, you gotta you gotta find those opportunities. The Suns weren't gonna step up and make that trade at the deadline last year. It, 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 that wasn't that didn't make sense for them. And they go eight and zero in the bubble, and build this momentum, and they say, wait a second, we can get Chris Paul and maybe be a really really good team. And that opportunity presented itself. So all that to be said, Chase, and the super long answer, um, you know, I think that for the Thunder, they saw that Horford's shown what he needed to show. The team is ready to play some young players and lose more. <laughs> and you know, I think Horford uh, understands that for him to get where he wants to go, he needs to remain healthy and not run around out there with Ty Jerome and Teo Maladon. You know, and yeah. and uh, that'll just make him look worse, to be quite frank. So, um, you know, I think it just made sense for everybody. Is, do you think the NBA is okay with it? Are they monitoring the reaction to this? What do you think the Thunder are expecting from the NBA side of things? The NBA is typically not okay with these types of things because they are very concerned about optics. But the truth of the matter is, Chase, this is this you know the blood is on their hands, right? I mean, like this is their problem. Yeah, the system has created the necessity to do this. Like, if they got a problem with it, they got to blame themselves. So. Mm-hmm. Like, look, that, you know, I think that that's the, the pragmatic answer to give you. Look, the NBA doesn't necessarily care about that. They're going to care about the optics and the way that fans approach this sort of thing. I mean, it's it's been a bad look for the NBA that on the same day that a small market team like OKC that was only like three games out of the play-in mm-hmm. decided to shut down Al Horford while LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin within the same week signed with the Brooklyn Nets, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a terrible look for the NBA. But I think... I think it, what it is is a perfect illustration of how lopsided the system is and how difficult it can be for a small market and, and the extremes that you have to go to to try to get competitive in the NBA. So, I, look, I, I don't know what the NBA's answer to this can be when a player and a team mutually make a decision. It's kind of hard to step in and say, no, 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 you gotta, he, he's got to keep playing. And saying, no, everybody's on board with it. You know, I think that's just what, what everybody wants to do. So, um, you know, I don't know what the NBA, what kind of solution they would have. Other than fixing their, you know, uh, archaic system that tilts it this way and makes teams make these kind of extreme decisions. Interesting. Um, what do you think when you look at the amount of first-round picks and the amount of draft capital and assets that Sam Presti has 
uh, consolidated in recent years in OKC. When you think about what his ultimate end game is here, um, what do you think he wants to do with this treasure trove of assets? Do we see OKC like sneakily get into the Bradley Beal stuff? Do they have certain guys in mind of like we know that when we go to the the meeting table that we have the most amount of assets that we can throw at teams with disgruntled superstars and that we're the sleeping giant, even though we're in a small market that we can offer the most for somebody like that, because we know that we can't keep all these guys and it just, you can't team build this way. So there's going to come a point where you just have too many young guys and it's not, not going to be a thing. Um, What do you think Presti wants to do? Or does he believe he can strike gold twice and draft three uh, future Hall of Famers in uh, in in just a couple years time span. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I think Sam Presti, um, you know, of course that's what he would hope to do, but he's yeah. not going to ever sit here and say that I'm going to repeat that. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that I don't think that he could he could ever assume. You know, Sam Sam actually is is quite a humble guy, and I don't think that he would ever go. Yeah, that's that's a repeatable action. This is a draft three straight MVP and Hall of Fame guys. So, you know, I think that. A phrase that Thunder like to use internally is shift the odds. They want to shift the odds because the odds are stacked against them. Just That's just the, the reality of the situation like we just talked about. Like the Being in one of the NBA's smallest markets, you, you have these kind of built-in challenges. So, you know, there's, there's three ways to build a team in the NBA. You can trade for players, you can sign them in free agency, and you can draft them. And for the Thunder, you can cross one of those off because they're not signing anybody in free agency. It doesn't happen. I mean, all NBA players don't sign unless they are born in the city <laughs> that that small market uh, exists in, or not even the city, but just a suburb of it, like at Akron and LeBron. Like, they don't sign in small market locations. They go to the mm-hmm. coast. I mean, you can just – Kurt Goldsberry, uh, my colleague at ESPN, just wrote something about, um, you know, how dramatic that shift has been. So, mm-hmm. like, so the other option is to make trades to try to kind of fill out your roster. But the problem with trading is that – when you do that, you typically get a player um, a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Your window of control over the player is much shorter. Paul George is a good example of this. And you you don't have that kind of opportunity to team build, per se. You, you just shorten your window, and, and typically the player's on a, on a decline. So the other option is to draft. And what you need is to draft high players. So mm-hmm. the, what the Thunder are trying to do here, and like you, you talked about it, They've got 37 picks in the next seven years. I don't think they're going to use 37 picks. I mean, the OKC Blue needs a subdivision, and Mm -hmm. and that subdivision needs a subdivision if they're going to draft all these guys. So, you know, I think what they are looking at this as their own picks are the most valuable they have, and that's why they're trying to kind of, you know, increase their chances this year. They've been too good, quite frankly, Chase, this year. They've been better than they wanted to be. Um, But – what they can do is, like you said, kind of pull levers. I don't know that they want to make a move where they do get in the mix for the next, you know, distressed star asset, whether that's Bradley Beal or, you know, like, what if that's De'Aaron Fox or what if that's, you know, whatever player you want. Oh, to I got it. I got it for you. Oh, I would do okay. this okay. today. Trey Young for SGA. Let's do it. <laughs> See, but is, is Trey Young better than SGA? No, he's not. I, and uh, Atlanta Hawks fans are going to get mad at me for saying that. But uh, SGA I mean, I don't. Is, I, look, uh, he's making the leap this about, year. You're talking about the biggest Trey Young stand in the world, right here in me. I mean, he went to my alma mater. I've known Trey mm-hmm. since he was in high school. But I mean, I don't know that he's. Yeah, I don't think he's better than SGA. I mean, SGA is a criminally underrated, like blossoming star in the mm-hmm. league. Just, if you just wipe the name off. 
and you just throw his numbers up at his age with his efficiency, it's it's remarkable what he's doing. I mean, personally, I think SGA is better than John Morant. Everybody's everybody Ooh, like well, okay. Everybody will sit here and say like Memphis has got their foundational star. They got John Morant. They just need to build around him. And it's like, well, why why is that such a sure thing if SGA is not? Like, I mean, to me, SGA is better. <laughs> like, I just think he's – but he doesn't come with the same type of hype and mm. profile and charisma and highlight plays. So, anyway, all that to be said, like, I, I think that the Thunder could try to kind of make that deal to add that other guy, like, to kind of – and I think that that's what they're evaluating. Do they have that elite foundational piece in SGA right now? I think that they think that they might – but they, they, you know, Presti's plan is to kind of build the next, like you said, Durant, Westbrook, Horton, like perennial contender, elite, high-level team that competes with the Los Angeles Lakers of the world. So to do that, you know, you need a Kate Cunningham. You need somebody else to add to this mix. Um, and maybe you need even need one other guy. I, I do think that when you have all these picks in your treasure chest, that, you know, if let's say the Minnesota Timberwolves get the number one pick or the number two pick, they don't, I mean, they don't quote unquote, they need it. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that the Timberwolves don't need it, but they would be in another weird position where they might say, I don't know that we need another, you know, we need Jalen Suggs to add on top. We just drafted Anthony Edwards. Like maybe we could like move back and, and St. Preston says, Hey, I got, I got three first rounders for you. <laughs> you give me number two, I'll give you number seven, uh, 13 and, and, and two more down the line. And then, you know, boom, he jumps up to that number two spot. So I do think that that lever is an option for Presley to pull at some point. Interesting. Um, do you think Lou Dort is someone they're going to prioritize and keep long-term? Yeah, I for sure do. I think that they've okay. been unbelievably impressed with Dort and his development. And and plus, like, if, you know, if the Thunder do what they're hoping to do, which is to get good again, Dort is like a perfect profile player to have on that type of team. I think he's somebody that understands role. He's under, he's somebody that understands um, you know, where he can really benefit a roster. And, you know, he does he does something really well that's really important on a team, which is play two-way defense and, and be able to score the ball. So, like, and also but how does he on, fit like, next to Poku? That's the question. Like, everybody yeah, got to think like, about I, how everybody fits around Poku. Poku. You know, I know I'm sitting here talking about SGA needing that other star, and I just, you know, I ignore Poku. Uh, exactly. So, you know, Roy, Royce Young regrets the error. Um <laughs> But, you know, I, I think that for Dort, like, you know, the way I kind of view him is, is like, you know, obviously his contract is super advantageous for the Thunder going forward. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of compare him in some ways to, to Marcus Smart with the Celtics. You know, you got Jason Tatum, you got Jalen Brown. Those guys are like the, the core talent of the team, right? But, like, Marcus Smart is kind of the heart and soul of it. And I think Lou Dort could kind of end up being that same sort of um, kind of like identity piece to the Thunder going forward. I, I think that they really, really like Dort, and I think that they really, really want to build around, like have him be part of what they're building around um, this roster. Interesting. Um, Mark Dagnault. I, I'm pretty sure I had to like look up how to pronounce his name when I was going back and uh, preparing for this, Royce, because whenever I look at it, I know I'm going to pronounce it wrong. It looks French mm-hmm. to me, but it, it doesn't come out French at all. Um <laughs> What uh, what are the biggest differences you've noticed this year? Because, I mean, he is a Donovan protege. He was uh, mm-hmm. just expected to take over for Donovan um, when Donovan eventually left, and he rose up with OKC Blue and coached under Donovan at Florida. So I'm sure a lot of the schemes and a lot of the in-game stuff is similar between the two of them. But, like, what have you noticed 
that you can point to and say, this is different than what we saw last year? Yeah, I don't think like systematically the Thunder are all that different because you know, maybe Billy Donovan took some criticism for like Thunder's style of play. But I think last year you saw, Chase, like the way that Donovan kind of wanted to play, right? Like he got he got some more pieces that kind of made more sense. I mean, I, by no means is this a criticism of Russell Westbrook at all mm-hmm. because you know, Russ is obviously a great player. But like Russ is a hard player to build kind of like a – you know, democratic type of offensive system around. Like, it's the Russ show. Like, Russ brings so much gravity to the table. He does so many amazing things that you just inherently have to kind of build your offense around Russ. Um, Chris Paul, I think, kind of enabled Billy Donovan to really kind of expand and explore his roster in, a, in, a, you know, in his offensive style, the way that I think kind of fit the identity that Donovan wanted to bring to the NBA. And I think Mark Dignall's kind of been able to kind of carry that on um, to some degree. So I don't think, like, stylistically the Thunder are all that different. You know, one of the big things that is different about them, but I think it's just more personnel, is they have a, a, a spread five on the floor. They don't have Steven Adams. They have Al Horford. Um, they played Mike Muscala there quite a bit. Um, you know, now they're playing Moses Brown, who is a little more traditional. But, like, you know, I think I think it makes sense for SGA to have, like, a spread five around him, a guy that gives more space and gives more opportunity to drive the floor. And I think that's been something – you know, Dagnall is, is very, very big on positionless basketball. You know, he, he is playing very quirky, bizarre lineups. Now, some of that is kind of tanktastic stuff, if you will. You know, I think like, yeah, let's get Poku some minutes at point guard, whatever. You know, I, I think that there's kind of some wink-wink. You know, we're, we're exploring and seeing what kind of developmental traits these guys have. We'll also be like, maybe the other team will go on a little 10-2 run. Um, you know, and, and I, but I, again, I think that that is where Mark has been kind of different is that and not to say billy was not aligned with the organization but mark really is like i think he's really aligned with the vision and the long-term goals he's not concerned at all about his win-loss record um i think that he is you know he's a product of the thunder like you said i mean he's he's basically been kind of like created in a lab by sam presti to be the coach of the team he is the god of thunder (laughs) and so i think that he's kind of like you know really embraced the vision of the team and um, you know, I think you're seeing that, you know, one of the things that Billy Donovan, you know, Billy Donovan is a, is a basketball coach like through and through. And like, he was out there to coach, to win the game. And I, and I don't know that Donovan was a guy that really saw like long-term goals, like long-term developmental goals. Dignall's different. Like he's that, you know, his background is development and you know, he's somebody that's going to say, look, I'm totally willing to sacrifice winning this game. If it means that this team will be better in a month, two months, two years. And I think that that's, that's something that's different, and, I, and that's one of the reasons that Billy Donovan, when him and Sam Presti talked after the season, decided that it wasn't a fit going forward because that's Presti basically laid it out. That's what we need to do. That, that's that's the vision of this team is you've got to you've got to like stomach some losses here for some long term gains, and you know I, I think Donovan was like I can't do that. I'm I got to win the game. I'm coaching, and so I think there were some differences there, and Mark Dagnall's a little bit different in that regard. Last thing, and we'll wrap up here, Royce. Um, what about the Thunder? make them such a nuisance and like the fact that they're even still flirting with the playing game and the fact that they're just mm-hmm. not bottoming out with the the talent disparity across the league with where they're at right now what about the way they play on just on the floor every single night makes them such a tough loss for uh teams that are just more talented every night yeah i think they're just a bunch of tryhards honestly jace i think that that's kind of their pro- you know quote-unquote problem <laughs> is that they just mm-hmm. got guys that have something to prove in the NBA. You know, they're young players that have not made money. I think, you know, if you want to tank and you want to be bad 
you need to be dysfunctional and you need apathetic veterans. You need what the Houston Rockets have. <laughs> like you need these guys that aren't out there trying to trying to earn a contract or and you know I think you 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 throw that in a bowl and mix it up with the Thunder's you know quote unquote culture and what the Thunder do well, which is internal internal development and uh, connectivity within uh, a team. And you've kind of got this recipe for a team that's just going to be scrappy every single night. I mean, they're going to try hard. They're going to play within a system. They're going to play together. Uh, you know, I think that that's been really beneficial to this group is that they are clearly enhancing um, player skill sets. I mean, guys that are just showing up and looking good all of a sudden, like Ty Jerome or Isaiah Roby, like, you know, those are systematic wins right there. And that, and, you know, I think that's a credit to the organization itself. And I think that's a credit to Mark Dagnall and his kind of underrated coaching ability. So, and then you kind of mix that up with also the weirdness of this season where you've got teams that are, you know, not emotionally invested in every single game. There's no fans in the building in most places you go. And, you know, it's like you can kind of sleepwalk and you're like, oh, we're playing the Thunder and we're playing Isaiah Roby, Kenrich Williams, and who else is on that team? Like, I don't even know these people. And they come out and they're diving on the floor for the loose ball and, like, playing together and out there, you know, trying to earn money for their future. You know, meanwhile, you know, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are like, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I think that the Thunder are just kind of catching people off guard sometimes. And, you know, I think that that's kind of been, you know, why they've been so good. And then plus, on top of it, but the main thing is is SGA is a star. I mean, he's just he's a, he's a really really good player that influences winning, and when he, he's on the floor, Thunder are a pretty good team. And you know, I, I I don't think it's been so coincidental that they've looked kind of bad since his injury. All right, Royce, what can we check out from you this week at uh, ESPN.com? Uh, just uh, I got some big projects in the mix. Nothing uh, nothing currently out there, but um, you know, I'm always writing news stories following news following games so those sorts of things are are going to always exist but hopefully some of those bigger projects are coming out in the near future yeah absolutely well i'm excited to read them as i always am royce thank you so much for the time i greatly appreciate it uh stay safe out there and uh, we'll have to check back in again soon you bet chase my pleasure man all right it's chase thomas again this time to talk to you about hosting your own podcast with our distributor, Blue Wire Pods. And there's no better place to host than Blue Wire Hustle. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive a personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is you can get all this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So, if you're ready to do more than just listening to me talk about your favorite team, then make your voice heard in Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited. So, get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Check out the description box in this episode to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com. 
com slash join. All right, we're back on a Wednesday afternoon edition of the Chase Owens Podcast as we wrap up here today to talk Kentucky basketball and what happened in 2020 and the 2021 season. Aaron Gershon is here. Aaron, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Um, so what happened? If you had to articulate to a casual college basketball fan this year, like what happened to this particular Blue Blood program um, and why they struggled so much, how would you, how would you articulate it? That's yeah, a good question. I think that, you know, I think it was probably an over-evaluation, honestly, of talent that they had coming into the year. I think that, you know, Kentucky's philosophy is obviously um, one and done. Freshmen load up with talented freshmen. And, you know, they thought like every year usually uh, that w- it would work. But with, you know, uh, the circumstances with COVID and um, not being able to have a full summer to work and, you know, gain chemistry and all that good stuff, um, it, didn't, it just didn't go as planned. And obviously there's no excuse because every team – um, across the country was dealing with COVID and the circumstances of having an abnormal summer. But for Kentucky being so young um, compared to almost everybody, I think it just hurt them more than most. And that the team just never meshed. And the guys that they expected to be, you know, the star level guys that they're accustomed to, like BJ Boston and Terrence Clark, just didn't live up to their expectations. Is this cause for concern going forward uh, for Kentucky in the state of the program with John Calipari? You know, I've gone back and forth on that, but based on how he's kind of gone about things uh, building for next year, I'm starting to think not. I think he really... So what is he doing to build for next year? What what specifically are you citing there? Well, I think the um, addition of this kid from Davidson, Brady, um, uh, Keelan Brady is huge. Just finding a guy who... One is a five-year experience, four-year experience guy who has insane shooting numbers, um, over 2,000 points, all that. Uh, I think he re- Calipari is realizing um, in today's basketball, really every level, especially college, um, shooting is what wins games. It's not always going to be the guys who are the most athletic or the top five you know, recruits in the nation uh, and all that. It's the guys who can go and put up points. Um, if that's you know one of those top five guys, that's great. Um, but you know it's not always going to be the top recruit. You need guys who are just simply bucket getters. Um, so Keelan Brady is one of those guys who I think is going to help this team tremendously. I think Nolan Hickman, um, incoming freshman, is similar to that. He's not a very high-rated guy, but he's a guy who scores a lot and he's a good passer at the point guard position. He's going to probably be a multi-year college guy, but that's fine. Kentucky needs more of that. And I think having a lot of returners next year is going to help. I think Devin Askew will make a big step. Remember, he was a reclassified guy. So I know, I think he's still 19, but he still, you know, hasn't played as much um, high school basketball as some of his uh, teammates did. So he was a really, really young freshman who struggled kind of expectedly. I don't think anyone um, around here expected him to be a star year one. Um, And then Jacob Poppin was a really pleasant surprise. Uh, coming back for a third year of college ball, I think he's going to take another step and probably improve his offensive game. And um, 
you know, they still have some other decisions that have to be made. Um, but I think having a, they're going to have a lot more returners than usual next year. Uh, Keelan Grady, like I said, such an experienced, uh, phenomenal scorer coming in. And, you know, Oscar, I uh, can't pronounce the last name, but the West Virginia transfer is also a huge get. And the guy who was a Big Ten freshman um, honoree uh, last year, so and a guy who's obviously played in the Big 12, uh, which is among the best conferences in the nation. So I just think they're going to have a lot more experience next year. I think the shooting should be better. Um, so I think I think if all things go well next year, you don't have to really think about the long-term effects of this year. But um, if for whatever reason it doesn't mesh next year, yeah, you got to start questioning things. Interesting. I wondered too if there's going to be like a mass following of what Nate Oates and Alabama did um, across the board, and kind of what Arkansas did as well. Just to be like, all right, we got to evolve or die, and that's just that's sports. And Tennessee might be facing this too with the reckoning with Barnes and the offensive issues that like it permeated throughout football programs that you can't uh, you can't do this, you can't survive this way. Um, do you think Calipari is at an age, and he? It, you, it seems like by getting Grady and guys like that, and him just realizing we have to change and change quickly, that um, that's going to happen. And also, do you think it's fair that he uh, did not maybe necessarily react as quick as he should have? Yeah, I, I think it, I think that's a fair criticism. I think that this was kind of. I mean, last year you had – the last year you had Emmanuel Quickly who just kind of made up for everything. There were a lot of offensive issues early in the year. Um, obviously, we saw them lose to Evansville, um, and that was a game they just couldn't score. You know, they had those losses out in Vegas to Utah and Ohio State. They didn't score much in those games either. Um, but, they, you know, Emmanuel Quickly's amazing year, the, you know, the year Nick Richards had in the paint kind of made up for some of the real offensive issues they had that year. Um, and then this year when they just didn't have those two go-to guys, it, it was just, it was there for everybody to see. And you could see the o- offense was just dated. And like you said, it couldn't really compare to what Nate Oates is doing, Eric Musselman, or even um, some of the other teams that have made deep runs here um, have done. So I think that, I think that Grady is a sign that he's realizing it. I also think that having Jay Lucas on staff, the assistant coach and recruiting coordinator, who's only 31, um, is really going to help since he's so, you know, he's not nearly as far removed from the college game. He understands these kids better, and he kind of, I think, understands where the game is going. So I think that's a big addition um, to the staff that, you know, really wasn't, you couldn't really tell it was a big addition last year because, one, half the guys, um, actually the majority of the team was, if not all of it, was recruited um, by, you know, the other guys on staff and Kenny Payne, who's now in the NBA with the Knicks. Um, so really wasn't anything Lucas touched. So this year will be a big year to tell you um, what Jay Lucas has found recruiting wise. And if um, those guys kind of fit the mold better, the, you know, what college basketball is nowadays. Interesting. Um, what is the recruiting situation looking like? What, uh, what uh, can we expect from Kentucky on the recruiting show over the next few months? Yeah, it's interesting. It's really going to depend on really how many spots they have. I mean, there's, you know, still potential for uh, Davion Mintz to come in and take advantage of that blanket waiver that every, you know, NCAA athlete got this year and come play a six-year college basketball that's still up in the air. Also, Keon Brooks could be back, probably will be back um, as a third-year returning junior. So just that, I believe, would give you six, maybe seven guys, um, scholarship guys returning um, from last year's roster. And then you already have Grady signed. 
Uh, you have the West Virginia talk, uh, West Virginia transfer signed, and um, the three kids they've already signed out of high school. The four stars: Bryce Hopkins, a small forward from Illinois, who was originally committed to Louisville, broke uh, out of that commitment, uh, ends up with Kentucky. Really, um, this kind of reminds me of Keon Brooks. I think he's going to be a multi-year guy as well. Um, really smart kid. Um, I have to honestly learn more about him. I've heard he's a pretty good shooter. And then uh, Damian Collins, who I think is going to be a really, really solid player. Again, I think we've learned to be patient. Um, I think that's the key. you got to be patient. So we'll see if he can come in and be an impact uh, five-star freshman like he is. But he's kind of similar to Isaiah Jackson, who was terrific for them last uh, this past year. Really tall, lengthy, can block a lot of shots. But I think he'll be a better offensive player. So as far as any other freshmen go, I don't know how many, if any, Kentucky is going to land. I really think you're going to see them more on the transfer market, try to get more experience. I think that's part of the learning curve uh, from last year. Um, So I don't know how many more freshmen they're really going to add. I know they've been high on Jalen Hardy. We'll see what his plans are. Um, But otherwise, I I just don't think you're going to see them add anyone else at high school. Last thing, and we'll wrap up here, Aaron. Um, What does the rotation look like, and what should – the expectations be for Kentucky basketball in 2021-2022? I think you got it. It's Kentucky basketball, so the expectations have to be high because anything else um, I, I don't think is acceptable. This is a blue blood program that just went 9-16. and 16. Um, That's not going to fly. Uh, it's not flying uh, with the people in Lexington. There are a lot of people ticked off, and rightfully so. So I think the expectation – uh, should be back to winning the SEC and getting back into the tournament and going deep in it. I think last year should, you know, be viewed as a, you know, one and done. <laughs> you know, Kentucky's kind of trademark. But as the rotation goes, I think, you know, the point guard position is kind of uh, dependent on what Davion Mintz decides uh, to do, how Devin Askew develops over the summer, and then, of course, how Nolan Hickman comes in um, as a true freshman, whether he'll be ready or not, um, we'll see. Uh, same with the shooting card position is going to be pretty interesting. I think that'll probably be Grady can play the two or the three. So he'll he'll definitely be a starter, in my opinion, at one of those two spots. Um, and that kind of, again, it's really, the rotation so hard to predict with, you know, Keon Brooks has to decide as well. He'd probably slide right into that fourth spot. I think you'll probably see Damian Collins start as a, uh, as a freshman next year. Actually, scratch that. Collins will probably start at the four. They might even try to move Brooks to the three if they could. It's really going to be interesting with the front court. They have a lot of depth. I keep forgetting about the West Virginia transfer they had uh, in Oscar there. He's going to definitely start in the front court because he's been with the program since January. So he just wasn't eligible to do transfer rules. So you're going to have probably Oscar and Collins starting at the four or five, if not Brooks mixed in there, unless they want to move Brooks down to a three, which I don't think fits him best, but they've tried it before. I definitely think Grady will start either at the two or the three. I think he's a lot to be in the starting lineup. Um, and then, like I said, the point guard position kind of up for grabs. So there's a lot of depth. It really is. And I think the more experienced depth is going to help them next year. And that's why you, you got to keep the expectations high. This is Kentucky still. All right. Well, this has been great. Uh, thank you so much. What can we check out from you across the internet this week, man? All right, man. Thank you. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. 
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.